Good afternoon. That was my exciting new theme music, um, which is a low hum, like that. Um, this is Hooting Yard on the Air. My name is Frank Key, live from London, as ever, on four o'clock on at four o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon. Um, some legal advice. If you're suspected of having committed a crime and are placed under arrest by law enforcement officers, never provide an alibi, which is bonkers. This advice holds true whether you're innocent or guilty, or even in that grey area between the two, like a character in a Franz Kafka story. Let's assume, for the purposes of our argument, that you were indeed the shady, limping figure eyewitnesses recalled seeing emerging from the pastry shop, clutching a handful of banknotes fresh from the opened till, over which is now slumped the grievously but not fatally wounded pastry shop proprietor. The pastry shop is a couple of miles north of Bodger's Spinney, in that little arcade known as the one-time haunt of flappers. You motored away in the sidecar of your accomplice's getaway motorbike, and just 20 minutes later, you were sat in the snug of the cow and pins, squandering your dishonestly obtained banknotes on bottled stout. When the police come to arrest you, whether it be that very day, or weeks, months, or years hence, do not say... At the time of the pastry shop robbery, I was clambering up a mountainside in the Himalayas, carrying a crate of exotic perfumes in preparation for a long overdue performance of Scriabin's unfinished Mysterium Officer. This is what we call a bonkers alibi, in that it's needlessly embroidered, easily disproved and demonstrably untrue. Also, many tavern-goers will have seen you swilling stout in the cow and pins within half an hour of the pastry shop robbery, and you could not have been in the Himalayan mountain range at that time unless you had access to an exciting space-age mode of transport which does not yet exist. Yes, I know that we were all promised our own personal booster jet backpacks by about 1967, but it didn't happen. Equally, you should beware of using a bonkers alibi if you are accused of a crime of which you are wholly innocent. In these cases, telling the truth is by far the best option. Imagine you're sitting at home one day, feet up, reading Celebrity Pap to find out the latest doings of Stig and Fulgencio and Agamemnon and Nobbo or perhaps other lesser-known celebrities, ones with besmirched careers, or no careers at all. Suddenly, smashing their way through your window comes a heavily armed SWAT team descending on rope ladders from a sinister black helicopter. A hood is pulled over your head, and by the time it's removed, you're sitting on a chair in a basement you know not where, being interrogated about your participation in the slaying of President John F. Kennedy in Dallas on the 22nd of November 1963. Now remember, you were not there. At the time of the shooting, 43 years ago, you were paddling in the brackish water of fiendish inky black pond with other tots from the orphanage. So it would be completely bonkers for your alibi to be I was standing in Dealey Plaza next to Umbrella Man, or perhaps Merry Moon Man, 
and then I strolled over to the white picket fence where I took the gunpowder stained hand of where I shook the gunpowder stained hand of Badge Man and then I walked off towards the triple underpass and the Stemmons Freeway officer. Quick as a flash, your interrogators will arrange for a screening of the Zapruder footage, find out that you have been lying through your teeth and charge you with being part of a huge conspiracy and cover-up. And all this because you gave a bonkers alibi. Next week, Madcap 11th Hour Plea Bargains. This is a story called Blazing Excelsior Saturated with Turpentine. The best way to illuminate the pitch black pit of doom is to toss into it some Blazing Excelsior saturated with turpentine. But that is not as easy as it sounds, mark my words. I have long argued that the pit of doom becomes less doom-laden when illumined, despite the craven voices of my opponents, and they are many. They have used the correspondence columns of many distinguished journals to attack my views, and I have until now refrained from answering their charges. They are a hectic bunch of cowards, ignoramuses and pond life, and I have had better things to do with my time. Why then, you might ask, do I now deign to respond to them? I have no intention of answering that question, but perhaps all will become clear to you as I read on, or not. What I'd like to do is demonstrate how you can illumine the pit of doom yourself using blazing excelsior saturated with turpentine. By following my instructions carefully, you will be able to reach your own decision regarding the doominess of the pit once it is illumined. My hope is that you will agree with me that it is stripped of much, if not all, of its doom once lit. First of all, of course, you need to locate the pit of doom. There are many pits which seemingly fit the bill, and many of them are shrouded in doominess, being bleak, unforgiving, dank, dark and hideous to behold. One of Dobson's out-of-print pamphlets attempted to catalogue the pits in a huge geographical area which might qualify as doom-laden, and it was an impressive piece of work, but the pamphleteer overlooked the fact that when one stands on the brink of the pit of doom itself, all doubts vanish. There is a curdling of the guts that tells you exactly where you are. No other pit comes close. This, you say to yourself, peering into the pitch-black moor of the pit of doom, this indeed is the pit of doom. You teeter on the edge, terrified of losing your balance, every nerve in your body ready to snap, but you step back, if you're me anyway, and resolve to banish doom by the simple agency of blazing excelsior saturated with turpentine. And that's your next challenge. 
Having located the pit of doom, you must now get your hands on excelsior, turpentine and a box of matches, or some equivalent means of ignition. And so you turn your back on the pit of doom almost insolently, and you stride across the moors to the little hovel you noted earlier, and you wrap your knuckles on the door. <clears throat> that was a cough, not a rap, but you know what I mean. You are expecting a snag-toothed peasant person to answer your rapping, and so you are momentarily disconcerted when the hovel door creaks open, and you're confronted by a winsome young woman who bears a striking resemblance to Tuesday Weld. Greetings, you manage to say. I come in search of excelsior turpentine and a means of ignition. Then you have come to the right place, says the Tuesday Weld-like woman, for here in my hovel I have all those things. She ushers you inside, and you are stunned by the interior, which is done out with much velvet and satin and silk, with vases of cut flowers, with space-age plastic furniture in a dazzle of colours, all bathed in an unearthly shimmering light. You are mesmerised by this light. Entire days pass by, of which you are unconscious, for you have been captivated by a woohoo woman who is rearranging your brain cells one by one for purposes either malignant or beneficial, depending on what kind of woohoo woman she is. When you wake from your entrancement, you find that she has placed in your hands a bag of excelsior, a bottle of turpentine, and a box of lucifers. You have been fortunate. She is a woohoo woman devoted to good. Go now, she says, and do what you must do. You are not aware that your brain has been tampered with, nor indeed that you have been entranced. <clears throat> you step out of the light, out of the hovel, and make your way across the moors to the pit of doom. Crouching near its edge, you open the bag of excelsior. It is imperative that you check that it is uninhabited, for hamsters sleep all curled and comfortable in excelsior, as do hibernating tortoises and other creatures, excepting those whose domain is the sea. You rummage through the excelsior until you are completely satisfied that it is innocent of life, hamster or otherwise. Then you open the bottle of turpentine and pour in such an amount that the excelsior is saturated. Then you seal the bag to ensure that the turpentine does not evaporate. Then you set fire to it with one of the lucifers, and then you toss it into the pit of doom. Now you step even closer to the edge, and you peer down into what was, until a moment ago, an evil pitch-black vent into the underworld, but now is lit. What do you see? I could tell you what I saw on the day last September that I illumined the pit of doom with blazing excelsior saturated with turpentine. I could speak of the unimaginable horrors I saw, writhing in terror of the light, of the howling that beset my ears. 
I could, had I too not had my brain jimmied by the very same Tuesday Weldish woohoo woman, whose mercy means that everything I saw or heard in the pit of doom lit by blazing excelsior is forgotten forevermore. For now I bask in that shimmering light, dressed in my peasant's smock, chewing on a piece of straw, at long last the idiot I always hankered to be. This is called Elegant Smudges. It was, he thought, a very elegant smudge, as smudges go. Look at this smudge, he said to his companion, pointing at the smudge with his forefinger. Do you not think it elegant? His companion looked at the smudge, tossed her head, and then fixed him with an inscrutable gaze. You do not think it elegant, he said, as a beetle crawled out of his tousled hair and launched itself into the shimmering air. It was a flying beetle. So begins one of Dobson's few attempts at writing fiction. And so too does it end, for he never wrote another word of what, only that morning, he had confided to his diary was to be, and I quote, a brilliant money-spinning scheme. I will write a potboiler, a guaranteed bestseller, a novel of triumph over adversity, with a dashing hero and a sultry heroine, a, a helter-skelter adventure of international intrigue, high finance, technological wizardry, and scrupulously researched background detail. It cannot fail. He scribbled those last three words with such vim that he rent the paper in his journal, and it was thick, creamy paper to boot, not easily rent. Forensic Dobsonist Jim Pond sees the rending as evidence of just how excited the out-of-print pamphleteer was on that March morning of glistening torrential showers and fractious gales. Dobson often lost all sense of reason when hatching a new scheme, writes Mr Pond in a new article. But seldom can he have been so deluded as this. For at least four hours on that rain-mad March morning, he seems to have been utterly convinced that the novel he called Elegant Smudges would not only be bought in the millions by an adoring public, but that he would actually write the damned thing in the first place. As is evident from the opening and only lines Dobson managed to jot down, the brilliant pamphleteer was a hopeless fictioneer. Mr Pond has unearthed a few working notes that Dobson made in the hours between his paper-rending journal entry and the abandoned beginning of the novel. I think we're lucky, he writes, that Dobson stopped when he did, flung his pencil across the room and strode out of the house in his big Canadian forestry service boots to enjoy the downpour. 
According to Mr Pond, Dobson was under the impression that a series of 59 chapters, in each of which two unnamed protagonists examine a smudge and disagree as to whether or not the smudge is elegant, constituted the makings of an unputdownable novel. Granted, each chapter was to be set in a different milieu, the smudges, elegant or otherwise, to be found in a bewildering variety of locations. But, as Mr Pond points out, Dobson's notes list only international airport and municipal bus depot. Where the other 57 smudges were to be is, as Alexander Scriabin might have put it, a mysterium. And did Dobson really think that readers would be turning the pages, breathless with excitement, awaiting the appearance in each chapter of a flying beetle? Meteorological records for that day in March indicate that the teeming rainfall lasted until well into the afternoon. Having cast aside his pencil and his aborted novel, Dobson, as we have seen, headed out into the soaking wet world. He returned, drenched of course, some hours later, having somehow managed to obtain certain obscure pastries from an unknown pie shop. These diverted his attention for the rest of the day, and by the time he collapsed in an exhausted heap onto his mattress of straw, the elegant smudges were forgotten. In an infuriating addendum to his article, Mr Pond notes that the word smudge only occurs once more in the entire corpus of the pamphleteer's work. But he doesn't tell us where. This sort of thing makes my blood boil, so I'm going to go out and throw things at squirrels until I've calmed down. Just to remind listeners that um, everything I read on here can be found on the Hooting Yard website. Um, I can't be bothered to give you the address. Put Hooting Yard in Google and you'll get there immediately. Or um, there's a link to it on the Resonance FM page. And there's also now a Hooting Yard annex, um, which you can reach via the Hooting Yard page. And the annex is a sort of sort of research source, reference and research source. Lots of additional information, competitions, interactive stuff. I don't know. Go there and find out. This is called Ten Days in a Ditch. Sometimes you just have to go and lie down in a ditch. That's what I did a week or so ago, and I've only just returned. It's definitely time for a bath, but I have to say that my ditchdom was thoroughly splendid in every way. For one thing, the ditch was a muddy one, muddy and puddle-strewn. And such gorgeous puddles. I studied puddles in an academic context some years ago, so I know, for example, that the Latin for puddle is lacusculus, which may more accurately be translated as little pool, but will do for our present purposes. Some of the lacusculi in my ditch were foul and deep. 
Others were shallow little things, almost vestiges of puddle. Each one had its own character, and I would have enjoyed counting them if I could remember how to count. Did you notice how easily I said, my ditch? I had not been lying in it for very long before it lost its anonymity and became my treasured, if temporary, possession, the way a medieval baron would boast of huge tracts of forest as being his possessions. It was in medieval times that a map was made of this area which shows some of the many ditches and even gives them names. Some of the ditches have vanished, of course, while new ones have come into being, but there are a few that have existed for hundreds of years. I cannot be sure whether the ditch I chose was called Bentley or Abercrombie, so I may make a trip to the library to consult a facsimile of the old map after I've had my bath. While I was lying in the ditch, I didn't give much thought to its name. I admired the puddles, as I have said, and I looked at the sky, at fugitive clouds, at birds in flight, particularly hummingbirds and wrens, for I have always favoured smaller birds. Large birds terrify me. I fear being pecked and I begin to tremble. When I saw large birds overhead, I rolled over onto my front and looked at the mud, or closed my eyes. With eyes shut, I sometimes fell into a ditchy, fitful sleep, but more often I allowed my mind to wander. I've been preoccupied lately with the fictional athlete Bobnet Tivol, having found a whole stash of illustrated booklets about him underneath the sink in the kitchen of my new set of rooms. Reading them avidly at a single sitting, I had been perplexed to discover that as well as being a champion sprinter, fictional athlete Bobnit Tivol had also won a number of medals and cups for the pole vault. Thus I had to alter my mental image of him, and I admit I found this difficult. For so long he had inhabited my brain, breasting the tape after a particularly gruelling sprint, a bit like the famous photograph of Roger Bannister breaking the four-minute mile at Ifley Road running track on the 6th of May 1954. I say a bit like because, of course, fictional athlete Bobnit Tivol sported a huge beard, a piratical eye patch, and often and mysteriously had breadcrumbs in his hair. Nor should we forget that wherever he ran, he always took his little gaggle of pet poultry with him, which would wait clucking near the finishing line, much to the consternation of various athletics officials in their spotless blazers, some of them with whistles on lanyards around their necks and some without. So this was the eidolon of fictional athlete Bobnit Tivol that I had cherished for years and years, and now it had to be revised. I had to try to imagine him pole vaulting. You may now be able to appreciate why I spent ten days lying in that ditch, Bentley or Abercrombie, without once getting bored. I will confess that I did not maintain my concentration uninterrupted, for there were many distractions. Leaving aside for a moment the birds, large and small, which I could see as they flew overhead, there were earthworms, beetles, the occasional mole, just one ant all by itself, which had obviously strayed from its fellows, and a number of other life forms which I did not recognise or cannot remember. 
There were gusts of wind which rippled the surfaces of the puddles. There was one spectacular rainstorm from which I sheltered by intoning a spell. And then there was Codrington. I do not wish to dwell upon Codrington, for to do so is very painful. Suffice it to say that I cannot shake him off. He's been following me now for at least 17 years. I thought I was safe in my ditch, and for the first four days I was. Then, at dawn on the fifth day, icy tentacles clawed at my heart as I heard the unmistakable sound of his humming, his footsteps, his creaking bones. And there he was, clambering down into my ditch, squatting a few feet away from me, his gleaming black boots submerged in one of my favourite puddles. He pretended to ignore me, of course, as he always does. He hummed and creaked and creaked and hummed. It took a titanic effort of will for me to remain lying in my ditch, Bentley or Abercrombie, now supine staring at the sky and the birds in the sky, now prone, my face in the mud, summoning the image of fictional athlete Bobnit Tivol, both sprinting and pole vaulting, his poultry loyally at his side. And listeners, I succeeded. Yesterday, on my last day in the ditch, that new image swam before my eyes at the very moment that Codrington, with a final creak and hum, stood up, hoisted himself out of the ditch and stalked away across the fields, frightening some cows as he passed, but allowing me some respite from his gruesome presence. And now I'm at home and about to have a bath and there is a mud-splattered envelope addressed to me resting on the mantelpiece. I know that the handwriting is Codrington's. He has left one of his communiques. Do I read it or set fire to it? Or do I do neither and go back to my ditch? What would fictional athlete Bobnit Tivol have done? He shall be my guide. I'd like to end today with a quotation from um, a book by John M. Gould called How to Camp Out. Um, so if you're planning on going camping, you know, it's going to be March, April, good camping weather, um, this would be very useful information for you. Um, because what he does is he gives a list of all the things that you should take with you on a camping trip. These are the essential items. Um I think the book is from the latter part of the 19th century, earlier part of the 20th. <clears throat> Essentials for your camping trip. Axe, axle grease, bacon, barometer, bean pot, beans in bag, beef, beeswax, Bible, blacking and brush, blankets, boxes, 
bread for lunch, brogans oiled, broom, butter dish and cover, canned goods, chalk, cheese, clothes brush, cod line, coffee and pot, comb, compass, condensed milk, cups, curry comb, dates, dippers, dishes, dish towels, drawers, dried fruits, Dutch oven, envelopes, figs, firkin, fishing tackle, flour, frying pan, guidebook, half barrel, halter, hammer, hard bread, harness, hatchet, haversack, ink, portable bottle, knives, lemons, liniment, lunch for day or two, maps, matches and safe, marline, meal in bag, meal bag, medicines, milk can, molasses, money, monkey wrench, mosquito bar, mustard and pot, nails, neat's foot oil, nightshirt, oatmeal, oil can, opera glass, overcoat, padlock and key, pails, paper, paper collars, pens, pepper, pickles, pins, portfolio, postage stamps, postal cards, rope, rubber blanket, rubber coat, rubber boots, sail needles, salt, salt fish, salt pork, salve saw, shingle shirts, shoes and strings, slippers, soap, songbooks, spades, spoons, stove, sugar, tea, tents, tent poles, tent pins, toothbrush, towel, twine, vinegar, watch and key. And that's um, what you should take on your camping trip. And this has been a different sort of, not watch and key, but me, Frank Key, hooting out on the air. Bye-bye for this week.